Good morning. I do want to say I'm disappointed starting off this sermon because Grady, only a few weeks ago, said he was going to dress up like Martin Luther today and shave his head, and, and yet he failed at that. He did get a nice haircut, but a little hipster for this Reformation season. Um, my name's Trevor. My wife and I, Kelsey, have been at Maricopa Springs for about two years off and on, I would say. Uh, and Grady asked me about two months ago if I wanted to do one of these sermons, and it just so happened I got to do Soli Deo Gloria, uh, which I'm excited about because if I really could choose, that, that's the one I'd want to do. And um, Not because the other four are less equal or not as good, but because they point to something, and today we're going to talk about that, which is the glory of God. Uh, before we do, let me pray, and then we'll dive in this morning. Lord, I do thank you for the truth of the word. As Grady just read, God, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray that I know that you have brought people here this morning, um, people that perhaps have never even been to this church, uh, maybe haven't been here in a while. Uh, God, you are perfectly weaving and moving people all across this world to hear the Word of God. And at the heart of the Reformation, that really was the emphasis, the Word of God going forth to the people of God. And uh, Lord, we bless your name. I thank you that we have Scripture, that we can stand and preach and teach the Word in America and God, I thank you that the gospel has sounded forth from the very beginning. And Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all those reformers were just mouthpieces for a season. But God, they are not the source of the word of God. They are not the essence of the word of God. Your word is the word of God. Um, so Lord, I just pray this morning you would use me as a vessel to preach and teach your word and to edify the body of Christ and that if anybody here does not know the gospel, that they would be saved today, that even if one sinner repents, God, heaven rejoices. So I thank you and that you will do uh, that which you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So the fifth solo of the Reformation is called Soli Deo Gloria. As we've been learning, this is a Latin phrase, and this phrase means glory to God alone. And specifically, if we talk about the five solos of the Reformation, we could say that they could be summed up in one phrase, and this phrase comes from the Bible, and that is that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not of man, it's not of popes or councils or any particular church, it's actually from the Lord. God is the one who saves us, not ourselves. And I want to set the stage this morning with a little historical background, because as we end this uh, series on the five solas, the glory of God, it, this is steeped in history, and Grady's been talking about this for the last four weeks. Brian Arnold was here talking about it, and that is that the Reformation took place about 500 years ago, and actually this is the 500-year anniversary, and it's why we're doing this series. Now, there's two men that I want to talk about leading in our time this morning. One of them you've already heard. His name is Martin Luther. Uh, if you've never heard that term, and let me just tell you a quick story. When I first got saved, about 12 years ago, I'd never read the Bible. I had no Bible history or background. And I, I got this study Bible, which has notes in it. And I'm reading the book of Romans because I thought in my unbelieving state that that sounded like a pretty cool book, pretty manly, pretty tough. So I dived into Romans. I'm reading the first chapter, and I get to verse 17, 16 and 17. And I read over the side notes, and it starts talking about how this Martin Luther, this was the, the main verse that God used to save this guy. And uh, some of you might be in the same place that I was at. I, I couldn't believe that it was talking about how this guy was hundreds of years old, and the only Martin Luther I knew was Martin Luther King Jr., 
Uh, and so I was completely lost. And so some of you might be here this morning. You don't have a historical background of the Reformation. Martin Luther was a Protestant or, or was a monk, a Catholic monk. And uh, he was devoting himself to uh, works, to Rome, to try to earn his own salvation. His soul was tormented by his sin. And uh, he was in the perfect condition for God to use him to spark the Reformation. So that is the first man that I want to talk about. The second one is a man named Erasmus. I don't think we've spoken of Erasmus yet, but Erasmus was a key figure in the Reformation. Erasmus was uh, a contemporary of Luther's, and Erasmus, even according to Luther, was by far one of the most intellectual giants of the day. He was extremely gifted in the Greek language and the Latin language. He was very studied uh, in those things, but he was studied in a humanistic way. So his focus was on uh, humanity and the human will, and it wasn't really steeped in theology. And Erasmus decided uh, that he was going to embark on a uh, particular work, and that his work that he, or or a paper or a treatise, they called it, he wanted to write towards or against Martin Luther and some of the reformers, and he wanted to title it, and he did, called The Freedom of the Will. And Erasmus wrote this paper, and he wrote it in a crafty way, if you've never read it, um, almost to, in some way, be appeasing or, or, or pleasing to Luther and some of these guys, so he, he didn't try to offend them too harshly, but he really was offending them, and he really was trying to cut down the theology of the Reformation, what Luther was preaching. A lot of these guys were preaching, and people started saying, because Erasmus wrote this work and Luther didn't respond for months, and people started saying things like, well, Luther's finally met his match. Erasmus has shut, Luther's, shut Luther down. They've stopped his pen Luther's finally been defeated by Erasmus, and it was kind of like this chanting cry. Um, And Luther finally responded to Erasmus' work on the freedom of the will, and he titled his work The Bondage of the Will. And Luther basically wrote this response, and for Luther, this response was the very essence, the very heart of the Reformation. And, And basically, what he said was that man, and Grady's been hitting this for a few weeks, man's will, the human condition, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, is completely corrupted. It is not, as Grady said a few weeks ago, mostly dead, or kind of dead, but it is completely dead. And so Luther wanted to attack Erasmus because the gospel was at stake. And him writing in response to Erasmus was critical to Luther because the gospel for him hinged on this particular doctrine. If man is not completely in bondage to sin, if the human condition is not completely lost, completely incapable of remedying ourselves, well then the Roman Catholic Church could be right on earning salvation through indulgences and through works and different practices. If that's the case, then people are susceptible to all sorts of deception and the gospel is completely tossed out the window. So much so that Luther is even recorded as saying, and he wrote a lot of different works, that you you could take all the works of Luther, everything that he wrote, and throw it in the fire. Except for Luther said, my work on the bondage of the will. Keep that. Hold that dear. And so I think it's important for us as we're talking about the Reformation to unpack this a little bit this morning. Um, I want to do so by looking first at the total inability of man. And I'm not going to spend too much time here because Grady has already talked on this for the last two weeks. If you've been here, uh, he's been hammering away at the reality that we are dead in sin. Um, I listened last week. I didn't get a chance to be here, but... Uh, I was just blown away listening online just how firm and adamant Grady has been talking about the reality that we cannot save ourselves. But I think we need to talk about it again. And uh, just sticking with Luther's theme of nailing the 95 Theses, I think I need to take up the hammer as well and 
make a few smacks at the nail and, and make sure that we understand this as a church. So I want to look at three scriptures this morning. One of them is from Ephesians 2, which coincidentally Grady talked about last week. And one of them is from Romans chapter 3, which also Grady spoke on last week. It's amazing how if we're rooted in the Word of God, it doesn't matter who's preaching or who's talking, uh, we're probably going to come to the same conclusions on Scripture and come to the same passages because it's the Word of God, and it's consistent regardless of who's proclaiming it. Uh, I don't, you guys don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 2 in Romans 3, and so you can just listen for a moment. It says this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in 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 which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, I just want to highlight two points of this verse, Um, and I, again, would encourage you, if you missed last week, to go back and listen to Grady's sermon on Christ alone, but two things from this verse that we need to consider, and these were at the heart of the Reformation. One is that we are dead in sins. The other is that we are under the wrath of God, and Martin Luther specifically, this frightened him. Martin Luther knew And some of you don't know this. I didn't think about this much before God saved me, but Martin Luther knew that God was angry at him. That God was not a God that was just willy-nilly and okay with sin and just, you know, tiptoeing through the lilies, but that God was a God who takes lightning and strikes people and kills them. So much so that that's what led Luther ultimately to becoming a monk. And so being dead in sin, I just want to reiterate, means that you are dead in sin. You cannot raise yourself from the grave. It's an impossibility to raise ourselves to spiritual life. And this is a major problem for all of us. And it was a major problem for Luther because he could not save himself. And he was hopeless. And he was under bondage. And that is why he wrote his response to Erasmus. Because for Luther, if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand the light of the gospel and how God beams into our souls and saves us. And the other Uh, other hand, there is the fact that we are under the wrath of God. It says that by nature we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Last week, Jason and I, we got to teach in the cove to second to sixth graders, which is just awesome. Um, If you guys have any desire to teach or feel compelled or gifted to do that, kids are a great way to, uh, to use that gift. But last week we were talking about this, and we've talked about it numerous times, and it's the fact that we are by nature children of wrath. And My wife is sitting right over there, and she has this little cute eight-week-old son sitting snuggled up in her chest, and his name is Tate, and I love him so much, Uh, and he's very cute, and I was actually going to put a picture of Tate up here and talk about how cute and beautiful he is, but Tate actually has a condition, uh, and all of my kids have this condition. It's called uh, TDS, and it's called Total Depravity Syndrome, and as cute as he is, he's a sinner. And the reality is, is that the older he gets, his sin will only start to manifest more and more. My two-year-old daughter, who is so cute, is a sinner. And my two other boys, who I love so much and and can say some of the the greatest things at times, are still sinful. And so the, the reality is, what Scripture teaches, is that all of us are by nature children of wrath. And we're not exempt. Everybody comes into this world in this condition. And if we don't understand this, 
we are going to pervert the remedy to get out of this condition. And Luther knew that this was uh, heavy at the stake. And so, with that said, I want to read Romans 3 real quick. Because Romans 3 also hits this nail as well. As well. And Paul, talking to the church of Rome in verses uh, 10 through 12 of chapter 3, is quoting from the Old Testament. And Grady mentioned it last week, but let me quickly read it. It says this. It says that no one is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Nobody does good. No, not even one. Uh, I just quickly want to highlight one part of this as we move on to the next section, and that is that nobody seeks for God. It is a, a common misnomer in our American culture, but I think this is around the world, that people are just seeking God all over the place, that your neighbors are just out trying to find God, that, you know, the man lost in Africa in a tribe is trying to find God. Um, one missionary uh, said once, who was waiting to go to Africa, to the tribal people of Africa, he finally gets there. He's so, uh, he is so filled with joy to bring them the gospel, and, and he gets there and he finds out that they don't want the gospel. And they actually hate him, and they attack him, and they don't want to hear about Jesus. And he was just dumbfounded because his theology was built on this idea that mankind, that human beings, are naturally wanting to seek God. But, the, but the, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. It teaches that we are at war with God, that we are not seeking God, that none of us are doing good ultimately, although we can do some kind of good deeds. But the core issue with the human heart is that we are rebels against God. We push God away. We run away from God. And not to a neutral position, but to an attack position. We are actually like a soldier or a rebel soldier who has left his uh, home, his country, and gone on the other side and start attacking uh, the place that he left. That's how we are against God. And that is a condition that for all of us is not good, which is going to lead us to the gospel this morning. Um, I want you, though, to, to turn to John 6.44. This is my last verse talking about specifically the bondage of the will, the deadness of ourselves and sin. If you do have a Bible, go to John 6.44 because I want you to read this for yourself. Uh, we could go to, like, every scripture in, in the Bible almost to talk about this, but uh, John 6.44 to me um, really hits at the heart of what Luther's writing was on the bondage of the will. Um, if, you, if you're there, I'll wait a couple more seconds, then we're going to read it together. This is the words of Jesus himself. Um, that doesn't mean that Paul's words aren't scripture or that John's words aren't scripture, but I think it's important to note that the apostles got their teaching from Jesus himself. And so we ultimately trace everything back to Christ, and then the Spirit of Christ has written the rest of the New Testament for us. But listen to what Jesus says in John 6.44 concerning our natural condition and our ability to come to him. Jesus says, Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I just want you to take notice here. Who can come to Jesus on their own will based off Jesus' own words? He says nobody can, no one. Nobody can come to Jesus unless a miracle happens. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to dive into the miracle of the new birth. Uh, Some of you might have heard the term born again. Uh, It's commonly for a lot of folks, uh, I've talked to Catholics specifically, they think it's a denomination, 
So you can be a born-again Christian. You could be a, you know, a Catholic Christian. You can be a Methodist Christian. You can be all these sorts of Christians. But scripturally, the Bible says, unless you're born again, you're not a Christian. To be born again is Christianity at its very core. And so open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 3. We're going to look at the first eight verses. I like to read the Bible. I like to go to a lot of Bible passages. I'm going to ask you to turn to a few of them. A lot of them I'm just going to read this morning. But um, John chapter 3 is the main passage about being born again. That is the very focal point of this chapter. And I I just want to preface it by bringing up John 3.16. Okay, just real quick, raise of hands. Everybody, do you know John 3.16? Okay, I think everybody raised their hand. I would argue that the most well-known passage of the Bible in the American culture is John 3.16. So much so that sports analysis for the NFL talk about the guy in the end zone with the big sign that says John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And this is a marvelous passage. I love John 3.16 because it gets to the core of the gospel in such in, in like one bullet. It's just, it's a kill shot for the gospel. But most often, John 3.16, by most people, is not understood within the context of John chapter 3. And again, last week with the kids, I was explaining to them context and how when we read the Bible, we can't just pull out one verse, isolate it, and come up with our own theology, but we have to come to all of Scripture in its fullness in order to come to right conclusions. And most often, John 3.16 is pulled out of context And it's used as as a a verse to teach that people can just come to Jesus whenever they want in a way that shows that salvation is really not of God, but salvation is actually more of man. And unfortunately, in our American culture, many people have been duped to believe that they are truly born again because at one moment in time, some preacher might have said, hey, do you want to repeat this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart? And he just deems people on the scene, you're saved. You're good. Or maybe some have said, why don't you come down this aisle if you want to be saved today and come over here and let me just pray over you and you're in. You're in forever. You're you're a Christian. And I cannot tell you how many people I've personally talked to on the streets evangelizing in all sorts of different contexts who think because they did that at one point in their life, they're saved. But the evidence of their life shows contrary to that, shows that they are truly not born again. So if you're open to John chapter 3, verses, uh, John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees, and his name was Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, he says, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everybody who is born of the Spirit. Now, 
Some of you might be very familiar with this passage. Some of you might have never read this passage before. Um, But I want you to just take heart here and realize this from the words of Jesus, that unless you this morning are born again, you are not in the kingdom of God. You are not part of Christ's kingdom. Uh, The illusion here that Jesus is getting at, talking to Nicodemus, and this is important, is that the work of being born again is supernatural. And he uses a couple analogies in here. We're not going to unpack all of them in depth, but two of them I want to look at. One is the natural birth. Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, all of us here today were born at one time, and none of us chose our parents, none of us chose our birthday, none of us chose what time of day we were going to be born. That was all something that God chose. And it says in Psalm 139 that we, each one of us, were individually uniquely knitted in our mother's womb. That God determined our days, it says, before there were any. That he knows our every breath that we will take. He knows every hair numbered on our head today. And so this same God is the one who caused us to be physically born, is the same one who must cause us to be spiritually born as well. Jesus says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, the gospel and Christianity and the kingdom of Christ is not something, unfortunately, like most Americans think, is just something we can man up and do. It's not something that we can just pull up our bootstraps and decide whenever we want that we are going to become a Christian. It's a supernatural work. It's something that must happen outside of ourselves. And until we experience the new birth, just like a baby, when they come out of the womb, they cry for the first time. They're here. They've arrived. Unless we show signs of spiritual crying, as it were, signs of life, then we cannot assume or think that we are actually born again and in God's kingdom. And the second illusion here is Jesus talks about the wind. Um, I love, I taught the kids, I've taught them a couple times on this, but I love looking outside. Unfortunately, it doesn't look very windy today. But I like to show the trees, and I love looking at trees. I love sisu trees. They're beautiful. They have tons of leaves, and when the wind blows, you could just stare at it all day. And when I stared at it, the reason I love it is because it reminds me of this very reality that we must be born again. And that being born again is like the wind. It blows wherever it wishes. It goes wherever it wills. We cannot see the wind. We can see the effects of the wind, but nobody can see the wind or determine or tell where it's coming from or where it's going. Jesus is giving background here to how we get saved. He's saying that is how the Spirit of God works through the gospel, is he's like the wind. And he's going wherever he wishes. And guess what? When he moves and he blows upon dead people, he raises them to life. That is how we get born again. It's supernatural. Um, I just want to notice or, or take note here and clarify a couple things about uh, the gospel itself. Although Jesus talking to Nicodemus here is not actually preaching the gospel. I'm going to clarify this in a sec. He is giving us backdrop in how the gospel saves us ultimately, how we come to saving faith. But nobody comes to saving faith or nobody is born again out of midair, okay? You're not just going to walk home today if you're not born again and just all of a sudden you're just born again out of midair. Something has to be said to you. God has a means to accomplish his ends. And the means, and this was the very core of of the Reformation, is the gospel itself. And this is why Grady would say, Maricopa Springs would say, that this is a gospel-centered church. We're not here to impress people with 
fun and interesting stories. We don't want to uh, be um, appealing to just any and everybody who comes in off the street because we don't talk about things of the Bible. We want to be a church that is centered on the biblical gospel because that's the only reason we exist. That's the only reason Grady is a preacher is because of the biblical gospel. And Jesus says that unless you believe this gospel, you cannot be saved. And so I want to just emphasize here that to be born again means that we must hear and receive the gospel, okay? So we do accept Jesus. We do receive Jesus. We wrap our arms around Jesus. But you can't wrap your arms around Jesus unless you hear the gospel and God does a supernatural work in your heart. I want to quote one theologian. He's dead but alive. His name's Arthur Pink. And Arthur Pink says this about biblical conversion. He says, Before man will ever choose that which is divine or spiritual, a new nature must be imparted to him. He must be born again. It was also a, a theologian named George Whitfield, and he was a, a, a preacher in the 1600s, so maybe 100 years removed from the Reformation itself. And he was an Englishman, and you probably have heard the name John Wesley before. George Whitfield and John Wesley were good friends, uh, and they were both in college, and they started this club called the Holiness Club, and they were doing everything they could to earn their way to God, and they were not saved, but they were doing a lot of good deeds. They were making sure that their clothes were not comfortable because they had to make sure that they could earn something before God. Well, both of these men ended up becoming born again, two different journeys, but God saves both of them, and they both became these famous horse-riding preachers. And so they literally would go in and preach to thousands, tens of thousands of people. Both Wesley and Whitfield probably preached to hundreds of thousands of people in their day by horseback and with zero amplification. My voice probably going to hurt today, and I'm using a microphone. These guys preached all the time, and God sustained them. But Whitfield uh, would preach, and he would preach and tell people, you must be born again. And he was always preaching that you must be born again. And one time this lady comes up and says, Mr. Whitfield, well, why is it, sir, that every time you speak to us, you tell us we must be born again? And Whitfield looked at her and said, well, ma'am, it's because you must be born again. And this is the message that I want you guys to hear this morning. This was at the heart of the Reformation. Martin Luther knew that unless God acted upon him and raised him to spiritual life and caused him to be born again, he would die in his sins that he could not please God, that he could not be righteous in God's sight. It was an impossibility. But it is through the gospel that we come to him. And so like Arthur Pink said, only when God raises us from the dead can we actually come to Christ. I want to use two biblical uh, uh, illustrations here. Is that clock right? No. What do I have till? 11.15? 11.20. Okay, two biblical illustrations, guys. One is from John chapter 11. You don't need to turn there. You might be familiar with it. But in John chapter 11, Jesus uh, hears word that one of his friends has died. His name is Lazarus. And, or he's about to die. Jesus hears. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word for Jesus. They go get Jesus. Go get him. Lazarus is going to die. And if you recall what Jesus says, he says to, to his disciples, we're going to stay here for a couple days. He doesn't go right away. And he lets Lazarus die, which might seem harsh. But what Jesus says to his disciples, he says, it is for the glory of God that we're not going to go at this moment. And you're going to see what's going to happen when we arrive. And so Jesus arrives to where Lazarus had died. He's been buried in a tomb for four days. 
And his sisters come, and they're weeping, and they're crying. And Jesus is weeping as well. And Jesus says to them, he says, where is the body? Where is Lazarus? And the sisters start talking about what's natural. Well, he stinks, Lord. He's been dead for four days. You don't want to go over there. And if you recall what Jesus does, he goes to where Lazarus is laying in a tomb, literally wrapped up in in, in shrouds and mummy clothing. He's dead. He's not mostly dead. He's not hanging out, tricking everybody. Aha, I got you. He's actually dead. And what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what does Lazarus do after Jesus calls him? A dead man walks out of a tomb, literally, takes off his clothes, people help him, and he is raised to life. And that is the very image, guys, of the gospel. That is how God saves us. If you're saved today, whether you know it or not, God raised you from spiritual death, just like he raised Lazarus from the dead. God speaks, and when God speaks, just like he created the heavens and the earth, it says in Genesis, that light shines out of darkness. God spoke all this. In the same way, he speaks life into dead sinners. And when he calls us by name, and he says, come forth, we come forth, and we receive Jesus Christ, and we love Jesus, and we cling to Jesus, and we follow Jesus all of our days. Another imagery quickly of this is from Ezekiel 37. Um, this might just be a quick plug. Guys, let, you should read all, all your Bible. Uh, you know, there's so many good things in the Bible. And unfortunately for Sunday sermons, and I think Grady's alluding to this, we don't have enough time unless you guys want to stay every day of the week and quit your jobs to go through verse by verse all of Scripture together. But as we look and mine and treasure all of the Bible, there are so many things that point to Jesus. So many allusions and imageries and pictures that point us forward to Jesus Christ because he is the center of the Bible. But in Ezekiel 37, God is called Ezekiel, a prophet, and he calls him son of man. And this is an interesting allusion to Jesus, I think. But son of man could simply mean Grady, son of man, you're just a man. Uh, and, and God tells Ezekiel to do something. Uh, he tells him there's this whole valley of dry bones, literally just dead bones. They're dry, they're, dis- they're, they're old, they're, they're, they have nothing on them. God says, I want you, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to those bones And I want you to tell them to get up. And I want you to prophesy to those bones and tell them to put skin on themselves. And to put ligaments and muscle together on themselves. That's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. Now go. And Ezekiel literally speaks a man by the power of God. And God rises up dead bones like going to the seminary. And all of a sudden I just say, get up. And God rises these dead bones and puts life back into them. This is another picture of biblical biblical conversion. And this is something we must understand. This is crucial, guys, because if we don't understand this, here's a couple applications or implications for us. We are going to leave a lot of people we love, a lot of people that uh, live around us, a lot of people who think that because, again, maybe they prayed a prayer, maybe somebody just told them you're saved one day, we're going to leave those people in a lost condition because we're going to think that they're saved if we don't understand these things. We're not going to pray for people properly. We're not going to weep for sinners properly. We're not going to have a hunger and a desire to go forth and to preach the word that will raise people from death to life. And Luther knew this, and the Reformation knew this. The Reformers knew that this was at the very heart. This was the very issue. Um, And if we don't believe these things, then all sorts of false gospels are going to to intersect uh, with us and with different people. Let me just move on here. I, I, I do have to say, I... 
This is a quick note. I wrote out this entire sermon. I was going to at first just have notes and talk like I'm doing now. Then I decided to write it out. So I'm kind of lost in here, but we're going to keep moving. Um, And we're going to move on to talk about uh, a few responses to biblical conversion, okay? Because some of you might say, okay, Trevor, like we have to be born again, and it's supernatural, and the gospel has to be preached, and I have to respond, but like how do I know? I don't want you to leave here today going, I don't know if I'm born again. How am I going to figure this out and start searching the internet? You're going to get lost. There are true signs to biblical conversion that we can know that we're saved. And if you guys have been Catholic or talked to Catholics, one thing Catholics will never tell you is that you can know that you're born again. You can know that you're truly saved. Mormons can't do it either. Neither can Jehovah's Witnesses. No cult, no false gospel can tell you that you are for sure can know that you're saved. But the Bible tells us that we can. The, the Apostle John, writing in 1 John, says the reason he's writing this letter to the churches is so that you might know that you have eternal life. Assurance of salvation, comfort, absolute victory in the gospel. And so I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I know we're bouncing around, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to look at three gospel responses for us this morning. First Thessalonians 1, I love this chapter. It is probably one of my favorite chapters about gospel conversion and the results of it. Um, I'm going to just read verses 2 through the end of the chapter. might sound long, but it's not. Okay, I'm going to read through these entire verses, then I'm going to point out a couple things to us. This is Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica after the gospel had gone to them, after he had preached the gospel Listen to what it says. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is a sermon in and of itself, but a couple points here that I want to allude. And the first is that to know if you are genuinely converted is to know that when you hear the word of the gospel, it comes with power. It comes with true conviction. It causes you to believe that the gospel is actually true. And you cling to it. And you hold it tight. And you're not going to let it go. This is, a, this is the first and clearest sign of true biblical conversion. Have you heard the gospel and received it as your greatest treasure? Do you consider it of no, of, the, of the most value to you, that nothing else is, is, is value to you is the gospel, and that your very life is at stake believing upon it. If that's the case today, guys, that's good news. You should have joy wellowing up in your heart 
because you've believed the gospel. You know this good news. Secondly, it says here in verses 9 and 10, and this is huge, if you have embraced the biblical gospel, if you have embraced Christ, you will have repentance, okay? This very word repentance was at the heart of the Reformation as well. The Catholic Church teaches that you must do penance, which is you must do all these different things in order to earn and stack your way to God. But the Bible says that you must repent, okay? The Greek word literally means the changing of the mind, which is the very nature of who you are. Your heart must be changed. And when you are changed, you turn away from who you were and you start to follow God. Notice what happened to the church of Thessalonica. They heard the gospel with full conviction. And what did they do? They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Guys, if you are biblically born again, you will know that you are because you have had a a radical severing with sin. If you once loved sin and it was your master, to be born again means that sin is no longer your master. You no longer love sin, okay? And you have turned away from it and you have embraced Christ. And you now love Christ and you love righteousness and you love to follow Jesus and do what he commands. Not perfectly. The Christian life is not we perfectly obey and we become flawless before God. But it is a trajectory that says, I have left something and I'm moving towards another direction. Okay, if that is not you this morning, you should be concerned that you have not been born again. And thirdly, and this is something that is on an individual basis, but on a collective basis as a church, and that is that if you are born again, and if a church, I would say, is a healthy church who loves God and has regenerate, born-again people in it, the word of the gospel is going to sound forth from us. If you guys remember the woman at the well, Jesus meets her and he tells her that she had had four or five husbands, I think, reveals her sin to her. Um, She encountered Jesus and what happened after that? She went back to her village and she told everybody that she had found Jesus. She could not contain herself but tell people about Jesus. In the same way, the church at Thessalonica They received the gospel with much conviction. And what happened? The word of the Lord, the word of the gospel sounded forth from their mouth. They couldn't contain it. People started hearing about Jesus because of the church of Thessalonica. And then Paul says, look, we we didn't even need to tell anybody. Why? Because everybody's telling us, well, the gospel's going out. These people got saved. Paul's hearing back from his efforts, God's work through Paul, that God has actually birthed people into the kingdom of heaven because the gospel's being preached. If, guys, if you are genuinely converted, you should have signs in your life of preaching the gospel to people. Doesn't mean you're going to be a preacher, but do you think about people going to hell and are burdened by that? Do you think about your neighbors? Do you think about your children? Maybe you're a mom in here, and you have kids, and every day those kids need Jesus. Is your heart filled with love for them to tell them about Jesus, whether it's parents or neighbors or coworkers? Whatever it is, if you're genuinely converted— One of those signs are you should have a desire for other people to be converted. Jesus said, freely you've been given, freely give. And that is what should happen to us if we are truly born again. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up here, a couple verses, um, tying this into the glory of God. I want to bring this back to God's glory, okay? Soli Deo Gloria. Um, This is so important, guys, because when we really know that we were dead in the bottom of the ocean, that we were hopeless and without any ability to save ourselves, and God raised us to life, we can't help but just worship God. It's the natural overflow of a converted heart, is that God receives all the glory. And I want to read to you a couple verses that highlight this. 
One of them is, is piggybacking off of what I just said about proclaiming the gospel. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Listen to what it says. This is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, talking about his ministry as a new covenant preacher. And this is what he says. He says, it's, it, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And why is it? Why is it that as the gospel extends to more and more people, God gets more and more glory? The reason why is because salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Um, I love these verses. Isaiah is prophesying here, and this is actually pointing to Jesus' ministry. So Isaiah is prophesying about this coming person who is going to set sinners free, And we know that that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills that. Listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet and think of Jesus as the fulfillment of these things. And Jesus actually read this text when he came to earth before he had gone to the cross. It says this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I have a few tattoos. I'm not going to get any more. My wife, she's gone, but she doesn't want me to. But I thought I, I, this would be a great verse, like a big old oak tree and something. But um, guys, just check this out. This is incredible. If you know Psalm 23, I'm teaching this to my kids right now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Another scripture talks about how we're like a tree planted by these streams of living water. It produces life and fruit. This is incredible. When God saves us and causes us to be born again, it's like him planting us as a giant oak tree. And when God plants the tree, what does it say? The reason he does it is so that he might be glorified. The only reason, ultimately, why God saves sinners like us, why God determined before the foundation of the world to set a plan in place that Christ would save his people is so that God would get glory. This is a God-centered gospel. And this is good news to us if we are saved. Lastly, and I'm going to leave us with this, and we're going to lead into the time of the Lord's Supper, is, um, is Romans 11, 33 through 36. When Grady first asked if I wanted to do one of these sermons, I thought Christ alone or glory to God alone. I ended up glory to God alone to get more time. Um, I thought, you know what, Romans, Romans 11, 33 through 36, I have to preach this verse. This is the text on the glory of God. Well, I didn't focus solely on this, but I want to leave us with this. And I want to encourage you, if you guys... Um, have never read Romans chapters 9 through 11. I want to encourage you to take some time today. Take some time this week and go home and meditate upon these three chapters because what they ultimately sum up is the grace and mercy of God and how he has lavished his love upon sinners like us. And as the Apostle Paul is writing the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, unpacking the gospel in great depth, he arrives to the end of chapter 11 And listen to his words. And I want to leave us with this as we sing songs and praise God. And that is doxology. That is worship. 
Paul writes this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This makes me want to weep. Um, we're going to be praising God forever because he loved us in Christ. This is, this is good news. This should move us, and it does at times in a way that makes us weep. Um, we're going to transition into the Lord's Supper. I just I want to say a couple closing remarks as we lead into that. One is just to the Christian, if you're here today and you're a Christian, Study God's word. I want to exhort you this morning. Don't be content with knowing a little bit about Jesus, knowing a little bit about the Bible, a little bit about the gospel. Dive into the Bible. Guys, many people have perished throughout the centuries because they didn't know the word of God. But if you know the word and you dive into the word, only one thing can happen if you are born again, and that is you are going to bear a lot of fruit, and you are going to wellow over with love for God and love for your neighbor. And this church is going to transform Maricopa because God is faithful. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to point you to Jesus. I prayed, even for just one sinner that is here this morning who is not born again, that God would in fact use this sermon to call you to Christ, to believe upon Christ to escape the judgment and the wrath of God, to be set free from your bondage to sin, to become a child of God, and to have eternal life. If you have not believed the gospel, I, I'm not, I don't want to call you up here. I don't want to have you repeat a prayer. I just want to urge you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon him. Believe that he suffered and died in your place. He was crucified as an innocent man, God-man that he bore the full wrath of God, that he was buried in the grave, and that God raised him up, and he reigns forever, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that if you believe this good news, you will be saved. It's simple. It's simple. Believe the good news of the gospel today. Now, the Lord's Supper is a time for Christians, okay? I do need to say this. If you have not believed the gospel, if you truly know, I'm, I'm not born again, if in your heart you know that, Listen, this is not a time for you, and this isn't to be mean. This is just a time for Christians who, by God's mercy and grace, have received the finished work of Christ. For us to remember his work, to do it together, to look at one another and rejoice together, to proclaim, the Bible says, his death until he returns. This is a joyous time. It is also a sobering time. We should recall that we are sinners and that God is not happy with sin and that blood was shed because God is righteous. And so, do both. Ponder the fact, if you're born again, that Christ suffered a great debt for you, bore your wrath, confess your sin, but come to the cross again, not to be saved again, but to marvel and to be filled once again with the riches that flow from Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then the worship team can come on up. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you, God, that you have called us to Christ Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the scriptures alone, for your glory alone. God, I pray today that 
those who are born again would leave here and we would consider everything else of this world to be rubbish compared to knowing Christ, to treasuring Christ, to diving into your word, to being in community, as Grady has been talking about week after week, to have intimacy with one another, to reach more people with the gospel. God, that we would consider our life, as Paul said, worth nothing unto ourselves, that we might finish the race that you have set out for us, and we might finish the task until you call us home. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for truth. I thank you that your word does not come back to you void. But God, you send it forth like the rain and the snow from heaven. It produces fruit. It produces a crop. And God, we know that every sinner whom Christ has purchased will indeed come to Jesus Christ through the new birth. And so, Lord, we thank you and we bless your great name.